This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. There's so many things to knock over on this platform, so I will <laughs> attempt not to do that. So um, what I want to talk about today is at its heart, oh, hello everybody online, <laughs> it's good to see all of you. We had no video yesterday, I was a little terrified that that was going to happen again, but you're all there, so that's good. Uh, what I wanted to talk about today at its heart is the question of why we are here. Literally, why here at Zenkeiji, Inconceivable Joy Temple, also known as the Austin Zen Center? What is the essential function of a Zen temple? Or as we say most of the time in the Western world, a Zen center. What is essential? to a Zen temple? This is not a new question, as we'll hear. <laughs> but we confront this question now in this time of what is sometimes called telepresence. Right? Tele is a Greek word meaning from afar, like television, telephone, right? a voice coming from afar. Telepresence. <laughs> You know, for a long time now, actually, we have been able to read the words of Zen teachers from all over. They're disseminated by newsletters and books, websites, and more recently, podcasts and live streams and Dharma talk archives, right? All of the things that support us in our practice in the modern world. And of course, all of this was radically accelerated during the pandemic when suddenly everyone went online through Zoom. Some of you are still there. We're all still there. <laughs> and we could sit and hear the teaching seemingly from anywhere, right? From coast to coast and beyond around the world. And I found myself at one point calculating what the time was going to be somewhere in India deciding, no, I wasn't going to join that retreat. We can pick and choose our time zone and perhaps the sangha we are familiar with, a teacher maybe, whose presence, even on a screen, sitting with a community far away, was somehow encouraging to us. And some of these opportunities were provided by larger temples, like San Francisco Zen Center, our kind of mothership. But even small groups went virtual in order to support uh, their own members, like we did. And they found themselves joined by people from afar, like we did. And I was talking to a priest friend in California last week, and from her I heard that Berkeley Zen Center, throughout the pandemic, has had 50 to 70 folks online for all their talks, right? And it's continuing, even though they're open again. Um, and often nearly as many people, 50 to 70 people online for Zazen, but only 10 or 15 in the actual Zendo, the physical Zendo. So what's our function being together? What is our function being together from afar? What brings us together? This question of why come to a temple, why practice with others, why hear the teaching is not new. The title of my talk comes from a koan, a teaching story, which is passed down from ancient China. And koan are often kind of glossed as Zen riddles or paradoxes or puzzles, but they are actually the record of encounters between teachers and students, or sometimes between students who practice together and sometimes individuals who find each other on the road, they have a kind of chance encounter, and it's remembered and written down and passed on. And although these encounters might have happened in private, they were recorded and passed down because they point at something essential. And what that pointing is, is up to successive generations to understand for themselves. So that's what our kind of entanglement with koans really comes down to. What does it mean for us? So this koan, this case, 
is number 11, for those of you who are interested, um, in a collection that is called the Blue Cliff Record. And it is also found with a larger context and more commentary on its kind of uh, context and meaning in another collection of koans called the Book of Serenity, which is also known as the Book of Equanimity. And in that collection, it's number 53. So if you feel like looking them up later, that's where you'll find them. The title in both collections is the same. It's actually not No Teachers of Zen. It's Slurpers of Dregs. (laughs) Slurpers of Dregs. So here is the basic case. Master Huangbo, who lived in the ninth century of the common era, by the way, Master Huangbo said to the assembly, you people are all slurpers of dregs. If you travel like this, where will you have today? Do you know that in all of China, there are no teachers of Zen? So the teacher in this case, Huangbo, was uh, himself the student of another teacher named Bai Zhang. And Bai Zhang is rather famous. <laughs> bai Zhang himself was the student of Matsu. And Matsu is the uh, master whom Mako quoted extensively last week, right? A very important uh, master himself. And Wang Bo's uh, main student, he transmitted to a bunch of people, but his main student was Lingxi, or in Japanese we pronounce the name Rinzai. He founded the Rinzai School of Zen. Right, so Wang Bo is a pivotal, very important, and famous Zen teacher who taught near the end of the Tang Dynasty in China. Right, this is the so-called Golden Age of Zen. And again, around the, he died around the middle of the 9th century. Interestingly, we don't know that much about him. But anyway, take my word for it. He, he made an impression. For one thing, he was seven feet tall. And he was sometimes called the Pearl because he had a callus on his forehead from prostrating so much, right? Putting his head down on the floor. So, yeah, (laughs) right? Very imposing, very formidable in every way. And he carried on this tradition that was uh, formed in in Tang Dynasty of a very physical kind of teaching, shouting, hitting, right? So in the koan that we just read, he actually marches into his own zendo and tries to drive the students off with his staff. And then he shouts at them, right? Basically, slurpers of dregs, right? This is is tough love. But this is the kind of Zen teacher that people came from far and near to study with in Tang Dynasty China. That's why he refers to traveling, right? If you travel like this, he says, where will you have today? Where will you have now, right? Where are you right now? Now, at that point, a monk came forward in front of this seven-foot-tall Zen teacher and said, what about those who guide followers and lead groups in various places? Which is a pretty direct challenge. Like, what about you? (laughs) What are you doing? Huangbo said, I don't say there's no Zen, just that there are no teachers. So that's the essence of the story as presented in the Blue Cliff Record. Um, There is a longer version preserved in the commentary to this case in the Book of Serenity, as I said, and some background stories about Huangbo, which give us some more information about him, and I'll return to those. But I want to focus on this somewhat arresting and surprising statement. Huangbo is a famous teacher. He is the disciple of a famous teacher who produced other famous teachers so how can Huangbo say that there are no teachers of Zen? What then is his function? What is the transmission of the Dharma from generation to generation? And what is the function of students or disciples? Don't we hear all the time about the importance of a teacher or teachers? I'll just one quote from Dogen Zenji, who is our uh, founder, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, our, our kind of founding ancestor, who says in a sutra we chant, the self-receiving and employing samadhi, and this is the quote, 
from the time you begin practicing with a teacher. The practices of incense burning, bowing, saying Buddha's name, repentance, and reading sutras are not at all essential. Just sit, dropping off body and mind. That's the end of the quote. So here and in other places, Dogen states that practice begins when you start sitting zazen with a teacher and receive the teaching. Nothing else is really needed, although we do all the things that he mentions, right? Prostrations, chanting, we do it all. But zazen is our main practice. So some of the background information about Huangbo. We read in the record that Huangbo himself had this dialogue with his teacher, Bai Zhang. So here's the dialogue. One day, Huangbo asked Bai Zhang, how has the vehicle of the school that comes down from ancient times been demonstrated and taught? Bai Zhang was silent for a long time. Didn't say anything. So Huangbo finally said something himself. He said, you shouldn't let posterity be cut off. Then Baijan spoke and said, I thought you were the man, right? You are posterity. Sitting right here, you, Huangbo, the future master, is m- are my successor. And then Baijan got up and went into his abbot's quarters, leaving Huangbo by himself. So pointing back to the person making the inquiry, rather than answering the question, rather than giving him an answer to his fairly newcomer kind of question, rely on yourself. On another occasion, Bai Zhang told Huang Bo, quote, if your understanding equals that of your teacher, like me, <laughs> Bai Zhang, if your understanding equals mine, you will cut my merit in half. Only when your wisdom exceeds that of your teacher are you worthy to pass on the transmission. And in this time, it is said that there are many people who receive the Dharma from their teachers, but never really surpass them. And in this lineage, it's the surpassing in this way of... of, of um, practice and understanding. It is going beyond your teacher, whatever that means, going beyond. So you might transmit 80 people, but only two or three were the ones who really make it into the record and continue the lineage. Here's another story about Bai Zhang and his teacher, Matsu. So this is the teacher that Maka was talking about last week the kind of Dharma grandfather for Huangbo. When Bai Zhang arrived at Matsu's temple, the old master, he was old already, the old master immediately asked what previous temple he had traveled from. And then he asked him, what do you come here to find? Bai Zhang said, I have come to discover the truth of Buddha. That's inspiring. Matsu said, What can you expect to learn from me? Why do you ignore the treasure in your own house and wander so far abroad? Baijan, sort of confused, says, What? What treasure? What are you talking about? What is this treasure that I have been ignoring? And Matsu's celebrated reply was, The one who questions me at this moment is your treasure. Everything is complete in it. It is lacking in nothing. And furthermore, the things it possesses are inexhaustible. Considering that you can use this treasure freely, why then do you persist in wandering abroad? So this goes back two generations before uh, the teacher that we're hearing about. So the seed, the essence of Huangbo's teaching in case number 11 of the Blue Cliff Record was already there in this exchange between his teacher 
and his teacher's teacher. Guangbo himself had wandered around. That's how he found, found Baijiang. And, and actually, he wanted to study with Matsu. Right? He got kind of, uh, his head was turned by this very famous teacher with hundreds of monks coming to visit him. There must be something good going on there, all these people, right, coming to hear him. He must have it. He must have what I want, what I'm looking for. So he went and found out Matsu was already dead, so he had to talk to Baijiang instead. <laughs> but we have Matsu's teaching to Baijiang, right, which was passed on to Huangbo himself, as we read in this record. And it is not just relying on yourself, that we actually have a whole uh, set of teachings that were recorded by uh, a noble person, a noble Chinese uh, follower of Huangbo, which is the transmission of the essence of mind, the one mind. This is the mind beyond concepts and discriminating thought. And it can't be taught. It's easy to be fooled into thinking that you have realized this mind when you haven't. And this is why a teacher runs into the hall and yells and waves his stick in the old days, right? You're mistaken. <laughs> So how are we not fooled? Here's another piece of background from the blue, uh, from the version in the Blue Cliff Record number 53. I'm sorry, in, from the uh, uh, Book of Equanimity number 53. And this is a very practical kind of uh, example that's included to help us understand what Baijiang and Matsu and especially Huangbo are pointing at. So this is a story... Um, to provide context. Once Lord Ji Hang was reading a book, and Lun Pian, who's a wheelwright, was planing a wheel. He was making a wheel and making it run true, right? Um, outside where the nobleman was reading. And the wheelwright noticed that this nobleman was reading a book. So he put down his mallet and chisel, and he came up and he asked, may I ask, sir, what you are reading? And the Lord said, a book of the sages. And Lun Pian said, are the sages alive? And the nobleman said, they are already dead. So Lun Pian said, then what you are reading is the dregs of the ancients. It's a little cheeky. The nobleman said, when a monarch reads a book, how can a wheelwright discuss it? If you have an explanation, fine. But if not, then you die. So in Tang Dynasty China, <laughs> craftsmen didn't question the nobility. But Lun Pian was sure of his point. And so he went on. He said, I look upon this in light of my own work. When I plane a wheel, if I go slowly, it is easy going and not firm. It runs too freely. It's not, it's not steady. <clears throat> if I go quickly, it is hard and it doesn't go in. The wheel doesn't want to fit not going slowly or quickly, I find it in my hands and I accord with it in my mind, but my mouth can't express it in words. There is an art to it, but I can't teach it to my son and my son can't learn it from me. Therefore, I have been at it for 70 years. This is an old man. I have been at it for 70 years, grown old, making wheels. The people of old and what they couldn't transmit have died. Therefore, what you are reading, sir, is the dregs of the ancients. Right? So this not expressing in words, in transmitting Zen or anything, right? anything, appears again and again, and it will come back yet one more time in a moment. So what does our lineage, our Soto Zen way, have to say? I already quoted Dogen once briefly, but I'll quote him again here in the Ehe Koroku, which is the record of his everything he said and 
uh, and did. And he says something about teachers that I think really picks up on this teaching. He says, already for 30 years, I have not been saying there is no Zen, but only that there are no teachers. Self and self stand shoulder to shoulder. Self and self stand shoulder to shoulder. So this intimacy, this no separation of yourself from yourself or you from anyone else, of student and teacher, of self and other, is an important point of the relationship of teacher and disciple, of Sangha members, of ancestors and Buddhas, right? It's the Zen of you and me as ourselves. And for the person who happens to be sitting here, the teacher as herself. We slurp the dregs if we think that the dregs or anything else we regard as something we can take in from the outside, including the sutras, the methods of Zen practice, the object we label as Zen practice, that they are Zen. These things refer, perhaps, to Zen. So the Zen, the objects that we label as Zen practice are not Zen. These things refer, perhaps, to Zen. But Zen as reality, the reality that you already are, can't be taught and can't be captured or transmitted. Now, various teachers of the present have things to say about this notion of no teachers. And in what follows, I'm going to quote a couple of contemporary uh, teachers whom you, some of you know. I want to be clear, I'm not talking about any particular teacher whom you might know, including this one. <laughs> I'm speaking of the idea of a teacher that we may or may not have. So I want to start with Norman Fisher, who has an entire essay in, I think it's in Tricycle, about no teachers of Zen. And this is what Norman says. Um, he's uh, Actually, this is not the Tricycle one. This is a talk of his online <clears throat> about a fascicle of Dogen called On Continuous Practice. So he's been lecturing about that during a session. Dogen says at the end of this essay on continuous practice, he says, for our life of continuous practice, we really need our teacher. We fully share our lives with a person who has been sanctioned by the Buddha ancestors to share his or her life with us within the sacred container of the Dharma. This is why a Sangha is a particular kind of community and the relationships that we have are, are and are, lot, are not like other relationships. The sacred container of the Dharma this is a willingness to fully share our life in the way until we see that our life is nothing other than sharing and has never been about anything other than sharing. So a wheelwright can't teach making wheels, but just by making wheels, he shares his life. This willingness to share our life is continuous practice. It is not always so easy. In fact, it is never easy. Because the more intimate we become with ourselves, the more we see our own confusion and self-clinging. That's the end of the quote from Norman. So for Norman, teachers are mirrors for ourselves and allow us to go beyond ourselves. And I think this way of looking at it is very contemporary. You know, when our idea of relating, of relationship, often starts out from a very psychological uh, kind of uh, point. We come looking for connection, we come looking for a certain kind of intimacy, both in the community and with the person identified as the leader of the community, the teacher. Norman goes on to say that we learn to love ourselves when we practice, and that helps us to love others and to trust others. Now, I don't imagine Huangbo or Dogen ever said anything like that to their monks. Right? So we are now in 21st century West, and this is what helps. Right? What helps? This is what helps. My experience myself as a student in our present day society was to be long locked in struggles that came down to my own conceptualizations 
about my personal history, my stories, my firmly held ideas, my family background, and ultimately all of that got transferred onto my various frustrations with the Zen community or the teacher or whatever, right? We just keep turning the wheel of suffering. But the Zen practice of Zen is the practice of transformation. Here's some more tough love, contemporary tough love, from Cohen Franz, who was trained in Japan, so in a kind of different approach, a different feeling about, it, about practice and about teachers. He says, If you enter into a relationship with a teacher defining success as being understood or seen, then you're aiming in the wrong direction from the start. Right? So this is rather a different tack. He says, if I approach someone as a student, it is to get over myself and to see what the teacher sees, not in me, because that's not where the teacher is looking, but in the Dharma. So this is an emphasis on reality, not about one particular individual and their particular karmic tangles. In this moment, in this action, I study how my teacher sits, how she eats breakfast, how she greets people she doesn't know, and I will imitate it all, not so that I can be her, I can't, but so that I can step beyond my own story of who I am. End of quote. Now, I think this is an important point that we can balance with Norman's more loving and compassionate, kind of outwardly, easily apprehensible compassion. It's important to realize that we don't imitate our teachers or try to be them, even though we can sometimes clearly see the imprint of a teacher on a disciple's way of handling things, of moving, even of speaking. This is a process not of becoming them, but of becoming ourselves. The steadiness of practice, zazen as the stability of our lives, is the ground of being ourselves, just exactly ourselves, which Suzuki Roshi famously expressed as, when you are you, Zen is Zen. Right? And it ties in with another teaching that a modern Japanese teacher, Sawaki Kodo Roshi, gave to his disciple Uchiyama Roshi. Uchiyama wrote Opening the Hand of Thought, which some of you are familiar with, and uh, his teacher was known as Homeless Kodo, didn't have his own temple, very uh, fierce, almost like Tang Dynasty in Japan kind of teacher. So Uchiyama regarded himself as weak and timid, <laughs> and he thought that by practicing like Kodo, Kota Sawaki, who was strong and fierce and unconventional and didn't care what people thought and went all over Japan uh, teaching and not having any fixed abode. He had no temple of his own. That if he practiced with his teacher, like his teacher, that he would end up being like him. Right? He would be also become fierce and strong. And his teacher told him, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> right? He, he said, I am this way by nature. This is just my karmic, you know, pattern. And Uchiyama didn't want to believe this, right? He really wanted to be his teacher, like his teacher. And so he kept practicing, hoping that that's what would happen. But ultimately, he came to understand that his teacher's charisma and his vitality were, as he put it, merely karmic attributes as natural for him as a cat catching a mouse, <laughs> right? They were not dependent on his practice, so he had to find out what his catching the mouse was. So Uchiyama compared himself to a violet and said Sawaki Kodo was like a rose. A violet doesn't need to be a rose. A violet just needs to be a violet. Both a rose and a violet should just bloom. Uchiyama Roshi is saying, I think, something important um, in this sentence. He says, if a violet doesn't become a violet, right, if you're a violet and you don't bloom, then you just waste your life force. 
He says, this is absurd. <laughs> Try to express your life force to the fullest. You want to know whether you're a violet or a rose. And now he's taking the teacher's seat. He says, I don't know. And you don't need to know what you are to put a label on it, right? Just live yourself and naturally bloom your own flower. It seems to me that this is what Sawaki Roshi did, supported by Zazen, his particular flower, and what Uchiyama did, and what we can do. Teachers, by being themselves and insisting we do not look outside ourselves for some truth or answers or affirmation, play their role. They play their role by not giving you what you want. <laughs> and we don't need to give this life we are a name or measure it or define it. And this is Huang Bo's teaching of one mind. And I'll just read you a summary paragraph. This is Huang Bo. All the Buddhas and sentient beings are only the one mind. There is no other Dharma. Since time immemorial, this mind has never been produced or extinguished. It is neither green nor yellow. It has neither form nor characteristics. It does not belong to the categories of either existence or non-existence. It cannot be measured in terms of new or old, long or short, large or small. It transcends all limits, measures, names, traces, and comparisons. Violet versus rose, for example. What is right in front of you, that is it. But if you start to think, you will be far off the mark. The one mind is like empty space. It has no boundaries and cannot be measured. Only this one mind is the Buddha. There is utterly no difference between the Buddha and sentient beings. Sentient beings are attached to appearances and seek outside for the Buddha. But in seeking the Buddha, they lose the Buddha. See, we go seeking teachers and we lose the Buddha that we are. Guangbo finishes, they make a Buddha look for a Buddha and use the mind to grasp the mind. Even though they exhaust themselves until the end of the eon, they will never be able to get it. So I think this is why he said there are no teachers of Zen. How could this possibly be taught? So some of our teachers in the contemporary world, like Colin Franz, warn about misconstruing what Zen teachers are supposed to do or be. Right? There are teachers of Zen, but their teaching is in how they live and in how they engage with each moment and with us. It is beyond or without words much of the time, despite all this talking. I think that's pretty much it. I think that Norman comes out in a similar place because he speaks about the inherent sharing of life that the other teachers do as well, <clears throat> and the humility of teachers in the face of everything that students in their communities <clears throat> will bring forward, everything that human beings are capable of. Now, before I close, <clears throat> I want to return to the today of Wang Bo's teaching. Today, now, here, is where we must be. It's the only place our life unfolds. The precious opportunity to practice together in a room full of mirrors with teachers who help hold up the togetherness of the practice, the shared forms of the one body practice all together, the inclusivity of the practice. This is why we're here. And there is the opportunity to meet fully with someone and present your reality to them, and they offer their full attention, meet you as fully as they are able. When Huang Bo strode into the hall, he tried to chase off his monks, but they wouldn't leave. <laughs> they scattered, but they came back. Like They ducked his blows, but they didn't leave the hall. <clears throat> that is when he challenged them and said, why are you here? Why do you wander around looking for something? 
When will you see right now? It's no other than you right here, right now. The brave unnamed student, they're always unnamed, the unnamed student who asked him why were there people like him presiding over places like this if all they were doing was drinking the residue at the bottom of the barrel? Well, Huangbo's answer was that the temple is now. The encounter is now. It's nowhere else. And that is Zen. Not the teachers that everyone runs around trying to learn from, but for there to be students and assembly practitioners, we have teachers. No students without teachers, no teachers without students. So together is our way, arising together, sharing and blooming our life. Thank you very much. And I think we can have some questions, if there are any, or uh, challenges. Yes, Dave. As you were talking, I was thinking about another dynamic of the teacher-student relationship, which I don't think was addressed in all of that. Uh, But at least I have found uh, impactful in my experience, which is um, saying that I'm going to work with the teacher, for a student to say that I'm going to work with the teacher is feels like a way of letting go of self, which is um, has always been, um, I don't know, transformative, I think, in good ways. And it's an interesting contrast to or interesting to combine that idea with another idea, which is, well, there's also really no teachers. So. Yeah, that isn't, thank you. So um, I don't know if you all online could hear that question. Yeah, okay. So yes, I think that when you decide that this is the place that I'm going to stick to, and I'm going to relate to maybe to primarily one teacher, especially the teacher maybe you asked for the precepts, right? You ask them to transmit formally this core practice and understanding. Right? Soto Zen is sometimes said to be the precept school, actually. We think of it as the Zazen school, but it's also the precept school. They go together. Yeah, then you're making a kind of commitment, but in some ways it doesn't matter who you ask. Right? That's just a person who has the power, <laughs> the authority, the authorization to do the ceremony and inscribe you in the lineage and give you the rakasu and give you a name, right? But it's fundamentally up to you, right? It's up to you to ask and it's up to them to meet you and then it's up to you to practice with the rest of your life. (laughs) So very often in our stories about our Chinese ancestors or our Japanese ancestors, you know, there's this moment where they show up somewhere and maybe they get slapped in the face But then it says, and then he stayed for another 20 years, right, before moving on and deciding it's time for me to take this somewhere else or to teach myself. So, yes, staying put and making a commitment with one person is not unimportant. But that one person is like kind of a fluke, (laughs) some kind of karmic fluke. Thank you for your question. Manisha. Well, um, thank you for being here teaching us today. Um, I just, uh, so I, like many people in this room, have been working in education for several decades, and I never wanted to be a teacher. I don't really feel very passionate about education, and education seems to keep asking me to come and be part of it, and I, you know, like I think our public school system and private school system is pretty horrible and, you know, it's really messed up. And and I have been teaching a lot, I'm thinking about like these extremes of teaching, which is like, like just like absolute self-directed learning versus like very structured academically challenging environments and seemingly a small amount in between those radical extremes. So anyway, my question is, I guess I have had a sense, like, like, of what am I, like, 
can I actually teach someone anything, really? <laughs> like, maybe better French pronunciation. But I guess, like, kind of what I've come to is really that the only thing that like, I actually have to offer is, like, love and connection with my students. And that that's it. Like, all of the things that I'm teaching are kind of just a, pre uh, like a pretext for this like giving some moments of like pure presence and attention and I was wondering if there's anything really more to it than, than just that. I, I was a teacher in a different, completely different way for 30 years. Got up in front of a classroom and lectured. You know, I thought the, the premise of, of getting up and being the sage on the stage is, right, you're a sage, and everybody sits at your feet and listens. Um, and that was changing very rapidly by the time I quit to be more what you're talking about, sort of self-directed, pure learning, learning from each other. And also, you know, I had students who were on their phones while I was lecturing, checking out my, <laughs> my facts. <laughs> uh, it says here that, yeah. Um, so there are lots of models of, of teaching, but I think ultimately, you know, since it's an ancient thing, the idea of apprenticeship, which is sort of what Dave was talking about, right? Sticking with one person, watching the wheel ride true a wheel and trying it and, get, and getting it for yourself is one model, you know, more like the, the student mentor or mentor-mentee kind of model. And the other is the sage on the stage. And then why do we do it, right, is the question. Why do teachers teach? And um, so I never wanted to be a teacher either. I never wanted to. It was what I needed to do to make a living, to do what I really wanted to do, which was spend my life in a library with my nose in a book. And um, I ended up teaching and caring a lot about passing on this thing I loved in some way, making other people who came to take this class for whatever reason uh, love it the way I did, or at least be interested in it, right? And you never know what you do, what kind of impact it will have. I used to get postcards in the days of postcards from students who would go to Europe and they would see something we had studied in a museum, like, you know, the Louvre or the British Museum or something. I taught privileged kids, right? And I would get this postcard from somebody whose name, I got, like, I saw the name, like, what's the face that goes with this name? But they're saying, I saw this thing that we studied. It's so indescribably beautiful in its reality. I had to share it with you. And, you know, like, that was it. <laughs> right? That was why I got up there and, you know, had people say, I thought this, this says, you said 490 B.C. It was 485 B.C. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, those moments of connection and of something you think is important. And I would say Zen teachers, the ones I know, get up there, whether they seem timid or not, whether they, and by getting up there, I mean, you know, going to meet you in a room upstairs or washing dishes with you or, you know, asking you over a cup of tea how you're doing. They care about you. They care about everyone. They care about everything and try to bring that forward somehow in every moment. Sometimes it takes the form of sitting up here and trying to say something. And other times it's just, hi, how are you? <laughs> Pat. Well, tagging on to that idea of uh, loving your students, I think that maybe it might be more germane to being a, teaching Zen, not teaching Zen. <laughs> yeah. Teaching what can't uh, be taught. Being able to step back and give your student a lot of space and uh, allow your student to find themselves. Yeah. So that stepping back is super important. That's, that's the law. Yeah. And, and yeah, and knowing that they can do it. Yeah, I think there's some balance between accepting whoever walks in the door, including a person that, you know, comes in with a different aspect, like, oh, this is different, you know, 
and doing just that. It, what, it doesn't always look like compassion. It doesn't always look like love, what we call love. I think Wang Bo loved his students. He cared about them, even though he yelled at them and <laughs> said, get out. <laughs> right? It, he was trying to wake them up. And the, the thing that I think teachers also try to do is get students to be able to rely on themselves, to give them tools, to give them confidence, and, you know, maybe they're not going to be archaeologists. In my case, they might end up being, you know, particle physicists or something. But that message, you know, of, yeah, here, I'll help you. But you still have to do it. <laughs> still have to do it. Oh, hi. Hi, Ann. Um, I've been thinking about that, and I think it goes along with your talk. I think you for your talk about this idea of realizing our Buddha nature as sort of maybe that's the fundamental point but also which is already there so it's just realizing the reality of ourselves and lack of self and Buddha nature but it's transformed but we say it's transformative but we're not really our, I guess I'm curious about where's the change oh yeah <laughs> where's the change I don't know if you could hear that question too um, yeah, we say it's transformational, but we but the teacher can't make it happen, and neither can you. Right? It sometimes it's very gradual, like as you come here or come somewhere, even in your own home, and you know, day after day, light the candles, sit down, breathe the incense, um, listen to talks. You know, it just you know like snaps into place one day, and it keeps doing that. It doesn't happen once and for all. Right? It's, a, it's a process. I think one reason that at least I, the teachers who have inspired me, inspire me because I see how that's worked on them, that they inhabit themselves and the way they relate to other people in a way that kind of gives me this sense of, I, you know, I could be like that, not them, but I could be awake. I could be kind. I could be confident that this moment is fine mm -hmm. just as it is yeah. so the transformation can be slow like you know walking in the I think Suzuki Roshi says walking through the fog and gradually you get wet or it can be sudden downpour right you're soaked through and what I think Wangbo is pointing to is where you have that realization that there is no measuring or comparing, right? There's no this or that. It's all one mind. And yeah, he doesn't say too much else about how you, how you get there, but it's beyond everything we say about it. Hi, Brian. Yeah, thank you for your talk. You're welcome. Um, I also, this is just building on what everybody else has said. I like this idea of the Sangha as teacher. Too, you know, the teacher's not just located in one physical right. location or body. And, and we come here, one of the reasons why we come here is to engage in these teaching moments, all these interactions with the roses and the violets and whatever else is, you know, um, ready to blossom. Yeah, it's a room full of mirrors. <laughs> it's a room full of mirrors. And, you know, sometimes we talk about Sangha practices like rocks in a tumbler you know, kind of rubbing off our, our rough edges, but also everything you encounter, everything, every person, everything is a mirror, right? And you can see immediately, you know, like how that's going, right? But like sometimes it's like, you know, I can be really patient and pick you know, the things and other times it's like, right? It's a mirror. This, 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 is, not, this is just a, it's, it's enlivened by me. It's my mind, <laughs> whatever its qualities. Yeah. I have a question from Zoomland. Hi, <laughs> Melanie. <laughs> I was curious about um, what you said about your experience of the conflict that you experienced when you came to a Zen center that that you say was connected to, I guess you could say your conditioning, because um, I think that's 
I think that's true for me. Like a conflict of nobody's going to tell me what to do. (laughs) Like a a basic sort of rebellion thing, but also a lot of insecurity at the same time. And so these things are, to me, interesting about all of us that that we can see, and maybe we see better sometimes than other people or think we do, how they're reacting to things like what it harkens back to maybe if we get to know people well but that's that's just us being human but I'm curious about what that was like it sounds like you've had some insight about that I'm still here I mean I persisted so (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's it (laughs) because it, it always comes up it seems like well because we're human beings and we're in a kind of society right so human beings are mixed bag, and but I think one thing that uh, these teachers emphasize, and I think I finally came to this, is trust. Trust in the practice, trust in the model of the community that we can actually together actualize it. And although I left my first teacher after 20 years, I can look back and see also what that experience of being there for 20 years did for me, to me, with me. And I'm grateful, you know. I no longer feel conflict with my karma. It's like, I don't know that I've completely resolved it or discharged it, but I feel like I can go on, I can live with it, I can continue the process so that, I think, is my, where I came out. And it's, you know, funny. Sometimes you, you're in this big tangle with someone and you don't see them for a while and then you see them and it's like, what's the problem? <laughs> right? Or it's like, oh, you, I, there's a problem. But we just keep trying, right? What else can we do? Trusting is trusting your life. This is life, right? As it is. That's really helpful. So that... that... Yeah, thank you. Maybe one more question, Chu. Did you have one? Yes, more of an observation. Uh, in the spirit of paradox and paradox, <laughs> I want to acknowledge and be, my gratitude and the gratitude Sangha for you stepping forward as our writing teacher in this year, in this center, in this now. Thank you. That was nice of you. Thank you, Chu. Uh, I just want to say, I uh, for me, it is a a great uh, unexpected blessing to be here right now. And to, I will do my best to support the Sangha uh, in any way that I can. And I hope you will come to me, talk to me about anything that you want to bring forward, privately or in public, <laughs> and we'll just keep on going. Right? This is the continuous practice I just happen to be here right now, so but I'm profoundly grateful. Thank you very much for your practice and for being here. <laughs>